The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 123. Our eyes look to the Lord our God, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, surreal and great to be preaching in front of some people today. So I preached last a couple of months ago as we began the series on the Consolation of Christ, and there was about five people here uh, now, a little bit more than five, which is a great, great feeling. Uh, Before I begin, happy Father's Day, those of you who are fathers. uh, Hopefully, uh, this is a good day for most dads, but as we also know that Holidays such as Mother's Day and Father's Day can be best of days as well as not so best of days for some. Deep pleasure and gratitude fill some of our hearts as we think about parents for today, fathers, and for others of us, it is pain rather than pleasure, grievance, and grief rather than gratitude. Honestly, I can relate with both those polarizing sentiments in my own life, with my own father. So before we look at today's scripture, If you're able and willing, let's pray to our inimitable, eternal, ever-merciful Heavenly Father who draws us closer to our own identity and destiny in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are who you say you are. Thus, we are who you say we are as well. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to call you our Heavenly Father who loves us more than any earthly parent can ever do. That as the psalmist said, even if my father and mother may forsake me, you will take me in. So with that confidence and trust and calmness, we come to you. Gracious God, we pray now that you will open up your heart unto us as recorded here in this particular short and pithy psalm. May you teach us what is truly of yours And may this time of speaking and listening and seeking to apply be done in accordance with your will and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, we are going through this new fabulous series called Songs of Ascent, which has psalms, poems, praise songs directed unto the God of Israel as many ancient worshipers of Yahweh will learn, recite, and bring themselves into this collective joy and remembrance of the identity and activity of God. Who is God and what has God done? What is God doing? So I was told that my text for preaching on today, uh, today, the 21st of June, was Psalm 123 a few weeks back. Normally, since I preach about six times a year, I do have a decent bit of lead time 
for preaching, uh, preparing, reflecting, and scribbling notes on my journal. But as I looked at today's text, I knew I had a tough one because the Hebrew word that we'll talk about later on, ebed, which is rendered according to the most authoritative biblical Hebrew lexicon or dictionary as slave or servant. I know, especially in 2020, in particular days such as ours, this will inevitably raise the level of anxiety and hopefully also that of interest in how this word and the rest of the psalm will be interpreted and proclaimed in public worship setting here in Nashville, Tennessee today. So I have to confess something to you. I struggled a lot with this text. It's been almost 30 years since I began preaching and doing various ministry, starting with youth groups in New Jersey and Pennsylvania when I was a seminary student, young adult ministry in Boston and Cambridge, England, and also in both Korean and English language settings. And for the most part, when I'm preaching the next day, at least I had my sermon ready by Saturday morning, or at the latest by Saturday afternoon. Last night around 10 p.m., I had nothing. I was in my study all alone, actually, and I just started to pray, Lord, you do not make mistakes. Lord, you do not change. Please help me as you've been my helper for the past 30 years of my bumbling efforts in serving you. After the prayer, I don't think I got a sudden kind of lifting of the cloud of unknowing, nor that great clarity came as a result of the prayer. But what I did get was sort of being able to get past the writer's block, so I started to pipe away on my laptop. I think what I have today is slightly unconventional from the ones that I've given before. I do think I have three points, but there are actually two questions and an answer. Um, So the first question is, does God change? Second question will be, how should we change? And the answer would be the irony of the gospel as answers to questions one and two. Does God change? How should we change? The irony of the gospel itself. So the first question for us this morning is, does God change? Why these 15 psalms um, that are Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are called songs of a sense is interesting. There are lots of kind of explanations uh, there, they seem to be mixed and varied. The most convincing four of them are as follows for me. Number one, that these psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, were sung starting in a low tone of voice and steadily ascending to a higher one, thus songs of ascent, number one. Number two, that these psalms are sung by the Jews who ascended from Babylon to Israel in the times of Ezra the scribe. So it is, you know, in the time of recovery and it is in that period of rebuilding that they were going from Babylon, the land of former captivity, to the land of uh, reclaimed land, that they were excited about what God had done. So they were going up to, so it is a particular historical moment in their history, uh, journey together that they sang. Number three, that these psalms were sung by the Jews when they would ascend to visit the Holy Temple three times annually for their festivals. That's why they were called songs of ascent, going from other places unto the mountain or temple of the Lord. Then number four would be these psalms praise, exalt, and elevate God. So this psalm, perhaps alone in the collection of psalms, songs of ascent, can be classified as a psalm of lament, lamenting something. It is lamenting the situation of the psalmist or psalmists 
describing in poetic brevity and terseness the excruciating pain of contempt and ridicule suffered by them, and also precisely because of such lapse of shalom or the peace of God as experienced by the people of God, they're all the more mindful of God's presence and purpose. They're mindful of God's presence experience, especially in his absence, and they're mindful of God's purposes experienced, especially in the seeming meaninglessness of the contempt poured upon them. Does God change, we ask. Some of you might be sitting there asking, why is that even a question, Paul? Of course God doesn't change. Yes, that's true, and we want to unpack it a little bit from this text. I don't have any desire to get deeply into a metaphysical theological discussion about divine immutability, divine simplicity, whether God changes God's being, and whether God's actions in the created universe is a telltale barometer of God's attitudinal changes toward that which is impermanent. We can get into a little bit, but not today. But what I do want to register certain points is that, that today's text brings to the fore as part of our worship of this God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer of all things, seen and unseen, how this God presents himself to us in this text. It presents God to us this way, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. It seems to kind of anchor God as someone who is in charge. It seems to present God as someone who is there, constant, persistent, not hurried, and knows exactly what uh, this God is doing. And not just in this particular psalm, but throughout scriptures, the Bible is consistent and clear that, that with God, there is no shadow of turning. God does not turn and change. That as God has revealed who God is in, uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 3, when God shows up to Moses to, in, in order to commission him for this stupendous task of this Exodus delivery and deliverance, God reveals himself in this moment at the burning bush. Remember what he says? Moses is kind of really uh, incredulous. I'm really not fitted for this task. I'm a fugitive. I'm a murderer. I've been out in no man's land for 40 years, forgotten and overcast. And God says, you know what? I am who I am. I am the self-referential one. I'm not defined by anything or anyone else. I define everything. You don't measure me. I will measure you and find you wanting and thus in need of my redemptive act. In fact, as we look at scripture, it is pretty clear that God is the one who initiates everything. God is the creator and all of us are creatures. We are recipients of God's actions upon ourselves. Indeed, all of the created universe is a direct effect of God's desires and God's act. I just realized it sounds like a long lecture, and, and, and I know it does a little bit, but I think it'll hopefully come together a little bit better. God's dealing with all of God's created order, especially recording Genesis 1 and 2, was one of benediction and blessing. It was good. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's very clear, unequivocally clear, that God was excited about what God had done. It was very good. The Lord desired and established a mode of relationship, mode of flourishing from the very beginning as the ark of justice and mercy. It was based upon this mutual exaltation and not selfish exploitative desires. God gave humanity a covenantal responsibility to work for the glory of the owner of the Garden of Eden, which is sort of a sacramental symbolism for the ecosystem of the entire universe. 
And in so doing, they'll find their true mission, joy, and identity. So in working in the garden without blaming others, in working in the garden without killing someone else's soul and body, as Cain ends up doing to his brother Abel, only in so doing we will experience God as the unchanging one in mercy and justice, grace and glory. So this is what I mean. So what, one of the things that I want to really unpack for us is how to connect the psalm with what's going on today, whether it is about protests and Black Lives Matter or global pandemic. And we ask the question of, does God change? And we'll come up with the answer that God does not change. And then we ask the question, how then should we change? What are, and one of the clear indicators of rupture or the fall is the way that human relationships began to just come undone. Rather than exalting the other, we began to exalt ourselves. Now think of it like this. If you are a Trinitarian, if you're a Christian, you will say God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That means, among other things we can say about the Trinity, one thing that is clearly throughout Scripture is that God is not in the business of selfish exaltation. God the Father says, you know, I am pleased in my Son. God the Son says, I am here to do the will of the Father. God the Holy Spirit, the ever self-effacing one, his job was to exalt the Father and the Son. That means when you are in a relationship as wife and husband, a friend and friend, a sibling and sibling, your life is truly more fun and meaningful when you get exalted by somebody else and you do the other work of exalting your, your other. In my relationship with my wife, Mickey, it is more fun when she says good things about me and I return the favor rather than me saying good things about me and she saying good things about her. Are you with me? Right? That's exactly, and now think about that simple truth as a fundamental principle of human flourishing. God says in your work, you are to actually work in such a way that you bring glory to me and in, your, in so doing, I'll also bring glory to you and give you identity. Now that inevitably brings me to the second question. How should we change? What we will do from here on out is to put the two questions in conversation with each other and see where we can, see where we can go with that a bit. If the Bible ended with Genesis 1 and 2, it'll be perfect. Perfect equilibrium and peace. Yet, that's not how it ends. It comes with Genesis chapter 3, and what we end up with is the story of the fall. Story of this cataclysmic rupture, there's a word for today. It's a kind of breakdown in the system. Breakdown in the system of this ecosystem where everything was going great economically and ethically in our dealing with one another, in our desires to flourish. Things are going great until we have declared our independence from God. Genesis 3 introduces the terrifying reality of the fall, or as John Milton, the 17th century English writer, called it in his epic poem, Paradise Lost. Something gets lost. What is lost? It's the loss of innocence, but also in our exercise of pride and self-agency, we end up depriving ourselves of something so fundamental, so precious, so beautiful. And so the question, how should we change? Look with me in verse 2 of today's text. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of their, her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. That is the ESV rendering as it was read publicly for us by Mary earlier. Not so much of a ouch factor to read in, uh, in June 2020. I, you know, I was nurtured in the NIV version, and I usually kind of use that as, I, as the go-to text. The NIV, at least as I read it, did something else for me. 
Let me read it for us. As the eyes of slaves took, look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us his mercy. Let me ask you, what words kind of jumped at you? What do you think made me unable to go on with the sermon, preparing and writing it out? It's the word slave. The word slave and a lot of other realities that were swirling in my head and in our collective lives together really kind of caused me to stop and ponder and wrestle and think about and look at and delay and, and lose sleep until last night. I wasn't, how do I present this? It is one thing to write a scholarly paper and publish it somewhere, but it's another matter to be able to bring it to a live congregation, a congregation that is going through the global pandemic and all of these other things of protests and trying to figure out where is God, where are we, where are we headed? So I, need, I knew that I needed to approach this pastorally as well as perhaps even prophetically, but all the while seeking the glory of none other than God himself. Look also with me in verse 3. The psalmist says, Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant and of contempt from the proud. Obviously, it is a song of lament. The writer is not happy. The writers are going through a real difficult time. As they're journeying in their pilgrimage, they're mindful of the fact that as they look at the mountains and hills, they're bound to ask, where does my help come from? As Psalm 121 asked that poignant question. And the answer is very clear. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who neither slumbers nor sleeps or changes at all. With God, there is constancy. With God, there is stability. With God, there is tranquility. With God, there is joy and serenity and glory and everything good and true and beautiful, there is God. And we take great comfort in that. We take great comfort even on this day, 21st day of, 21st day of June in 2020, knowing that with God there is no change. It ought to give us some modicum of comfort and kind of corresponding serenity because everything else does change. As we take our eyes off the God of Israel, we face ourselves with tragedies and perils and instability, anxiety, insanity, local and global pandemic, protests, and you are barely hanging on to our seats. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I stop watching a lot of things. I stop watching CNN. I stop watching Fox News. I stop watching CS, MSNBC, CNBC, because I don't know who to trust. Are you like that? I don't, anyone there? Am I alone? Can you show me your hands if you like? Yeah, okay, thank you, Amy. Thank you, others. Yeah, I'm glad you're... I, I feel like, who do I listen to? Where do I get the news? So I go to BBC sometimes. Like Even that can be confusing. So I read the New York Times. Like I don't know about that. Boston Globe, maybe too much. Tennessean. And I'm just an information overflow, and I don't know where to turn to. That is me. So I just tune myself out. I don't want to know. I'm just going to, I'm going to wait until my wife tells me who's, you know, she's pretty woke, but she's not that woke. So if she tells me something's going on, then I really need to pay attention. So it's like, if my wife does, okay, I, I got to go check that out. How do you check it out? I don't know. I don't know whom to trust. I know that God doesn't change, but all around is. So am I deluding myself in saying that God alone does not change? 
What true pastoral and psychological and personal benefit is there in adhering to this fanciful, infantile notion of our heavenly parent being there with you and for you and all is going to a terrible place in the handbasket, some secular critic might legitimately say. Is God our projection of desires for protection, as many have said? Have we created God in our own image? Are we turning to God more in times of difficulty or are we turning to God in times of flourishing? These are some legitimate questions to ponder, especially in our days right now. You see, friends, we have a real difficulty in reading texts such as Psalm 123 or any other biblical text for this reason. We cannot really identify with them. Let me say that again. There's a very simple reason why so many of us have a hard time identifying with psalms like this because our stories are so very different. We don't feel like we're recipients of contempt and ridicule. We feel like, quite frankly, I feel like I'm part of the arrogant and part of the proud. So how do I then enter into the life story of the psalmist and the group of exilic Israelites or pre-exilic Israelites as they were, and we'll say more about that in just a few minutes. We think of the ancient Israelites as people who lived some thousands of years ago, and they did. We don't really go on pilgrimages like they did. We don't have our settings of slaves and servants and things like that. So inevitably, we read Psalms like this, we take a step back. We can take a step back and say, I wonder what he's going to say. I want you to be active listeners and engage worshipers today with me. Think of it as if we're listening to the God, the Word of God, as is explained by mere mortal human being. But yet, in this worship setting, we also believe in the God, the Spirit's work in us, reading, speaking, listening, and applying. So, we don't really go on pilgrimages like the ancient Israelites did, or as is continually done by the global Islamic community toward Mecca called Hajj. For us to truly understand then the meaning and participate in the work of God's spirit in building our community to be transformative ones is to see how we are connected with them. The sort of connection is very important and we'll say more about that. The text of their life is connected to ours and their stories are also to be connected with ours as well. Come to think of it, friends, if COVID-19 has taught me or you anything, it is that we are all connected, aren't we? Let me make it very clear in case you're doubting. What has transpired in the last, in the corner of the world in Wuhan, China, has had a tremendous global effect everywhere else. When have we seen the global economy coming to a screeching halt? What has happened over there has impacted all, everyone I know. Every single person, I don't know a single person who isn't affected by COVID-19, do you? Every single one of your friends, every single one of your family, I don't mean affected in an adverse and kind of sickly way, but every one of our lives has been changed. Things have changed so much. And you know what? Six months ago, January 2020, could you have predicted that we'll be wearing masks? I don't know about you, but I, 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 I don't remember the last time I wore a mask or had to go into a store or couldn't go into a store without a mask on and so on. That seems surreal to me, and yet it has become quite normal. Two mythical notions were found out to be exactly that myth. One is a myth of control of future, right? You think you have control of your future. I thought I did. I thought I had all the events that I was going to speak and do things from May 2020 till March 21. All of them got canceled. You know, 
I, th- I, th- I thought they were going to happen. And the other thing is myth of self-sufficiency. We think that we can be alone and not connected with others, and we're not going to be impacting them, and they're not going to be impacting us. No, we are connected. The connection, though it is a viral connection, but that connection is what actually brings us, ironically, to this important truth that what happened to the stories of Psalms, the songs of ascent, also needs to have some connection with us. We may not realize it, but the story of this psalmist, this lament psalm, ought to teach us something about ourselves here and now. This text of verse 2 does not seem to indict or condemn the way that servants or slaves are relating with their masters and mistresses. So does that justify this economic existential mode of being as we have experienced in the last few hundred years? It seems clear that the original, originally defined design of outsourcing work or having others work for you, just as God did in giving Adam and Eve work to do in the Garden of Eden, is given in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me say it is very important because I'm going to talk about slavery as an economic system and what was God's design in it and what, 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 what have we done with it. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that we can sympathize with and enter into the story of many in this community. So God is an outsourcing agent, okay? God didn't do God's own work. Adam and Eve were created, and they were actually covenantal partners. They were given this awesome privilege. They were actually co-regents with God. Did you know that? As we are the ones, the unique ones, with the image of God within us, that means we are actually going to reflect the glory of God and the grace of God. And God is the economist. God is the worker. God builds this. God, God could have done this. God could have created everything as a perfection and let it be. But God says, no, I'm going to give my human agents something to do. In their work, they'll find their mission and joy and identity. And also their work will be worship. So there is a real important correspondence between work as worshipful activity. Work as a way to really exalt the other, namely God, but also in our economic production system, we do not exploit others as a way of profiting ourselves. That was exactly what was kind of provided in the story of Genesis. And yet with the fall, what happens is this. Something happened in the workplace of Cain and Abel. Cain did not like what happened. Abel was, God was satisfied with Abel, and what happened? Cain actually, because of the rupture at work, ends up killing his brother. Adam and Eve, in their very workplace, when their expressions of pride led them to the fall, they end up blaming God or shifting blame from themselves to another. So there is a radical breakdown of this economic and ethical system that was flourishing at the Garden of Eden. And then how is that connected with outsourcing work in terms of hiring people, right? So hiring people is simply this. Let's say I cannot do the work myself, so I ask someone to do it. But in my asking you to do the work, what I am doing is I am giving you an opportunity for economic production so that you can have your livelihood. But in so doing, if I'm going to take away your personal dignity and identity and take you away from your home, you know, to bring you from, from one place to a thousand miles away, in order to rob you of your sense of identity and security, that is clearly diabolical. That is not pleasing the heart of God. So here in verse 2, what it has is the, the psalmist is not critiquing the, the system of you know, servants and slavery. No, it is not that. However, what it is doing, it seems to me, is presenting a picture where there, is, there could be a mode of that kind of existence. So what does that mean then? 
What does that mean? Economic production and ethical other exalting was the intention of God in giving us work, especially when others were doing our work on our behalf. Love, love your neighbor as yourself was as much an economic principle as it was an ethical one. Yet when we read today's text, I cannot separate the word abed rendered more delicately as servants or more forthrightly as slaves from the past 500 years and beyond of the deviation from that divine design. Exploitation of human labor and love by chattel slavery and forced migration against the wills of those who are living happily on the other continent is a proof positive of that. Does God condone slavery or in fact promote slavery? We will say the answer is so farcical nowadays that it perhaps does not deserve an answer. And yet we realize that this nation of ours was split over the issue of economic and ethical import of slavery of African Americans. So to answer it succinctly then, God does not condone or promote slavery, especially if this mode of economic production and relationship is defined as a way to denigrate, deny, and destroy someone else's identity, integrity as a property of chattel slavery. So that leads me back to the second question. How should we change? In establishing communities and societies where selfish exploitation does not become the leading motif of our relationships, economic interactions, and ethical dealings. I mentioned global interconnectivity earlier as a result of COVID-19, as well as the death of George Floyd now. We're connected together. Whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, we are connected together. When George Floyd said, I can't breathe and died, I felt that we truly have a national breathing problem if we fail to see that as a problem that affects us all. Talking to a friend of mine who said, you know, remember the, the uh, uh, wrist bracelet that says WWJD, what would Jesus do? This friend asked, hey, what about WJPT? I said, what is WJPT? Would Jesus protest today? What would Jesus do? How should we change? This group of ancient Israelites' experience is perhaps closer to certain groups of people today here in America. This particular psalm says, yes, you are sitting, seated enthroned in heaven, and we look to you until you show us mercy because we have had so much contempt, so much ridicule from the arrogant and from the proud. Now, this is not only along racial lines. There are plenty of people who have suffered a lot, whose experience in life has been more of a recipient of ridicule and contempt rather than doing well in life. And I think I, I want to be very sensitive about the fact that all of us feel in some ways like, okay, I can relate with this particular group of people as well. So the, this group, they're asking for mercy from the Lord because they've endured no end of contempt, no end of ridicule, can we relate to that? I want to quote a passage from a former refugee pastor whose mode of religion was based upon protest. Did you know that you as a Presbyterian, that means you're a Protestant? You're protesting against the late medieval excesses and abuses of religion within Catholicism? So there is a protest pastor whose name is John Calvin who was a refugee from France and ended up in Geneva. He did not become a citizen until five years before he died. So he was 55 when he passed, passed on, and he was 50 years old when he became a Genevan citizen. A very, very effective and powerful pastor, but not a citizen, did not have citizen uh, privileges. And this is what he says. So this, he was preaching on and commenting on the book of Isaiah. And what he does is this. In Isaiah chapter 10, 
God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and really excoriating the lapse of justice, this prevalence of injustice in Israelite society. And God really says, you know what, I want you to speak into the hearts of the conditions of this injustice that's so grossly rampant in my place where shalom should be leading, where a flourishing of all human persons ought to be occurring. And so whatever that century is, right? So 8th century, 10th century BC, now you come to the 16th century Geneva where Calvin is preaching about the issues of Geneva as well as the Israelite context. And this is what he says about the issues of injustice and justice, particularly regarding the poor. Calvin writes, this is the iniquity and oppression which he had mentioned in the former verse in Isaiah 10, that the poor are deprived of their rights and are robbed for the sake of the rich and go away mocked from the judgment seat while everything is laid open to plunder. Calvin says, Isaiah chiefly mentions the poor because for the most part, they are destitute of help and assistance while magistrates and judges ought to have assisted them more than others. They allow themselves greater liberty and indulge more contemptuously in oppressing them. Did you hear that? Calvin says, look, in Isaiah's time as well as in today's time, what civil magistrates should be doing is to protect the poor and the more vulnerable ones more assiduously, but in fact, quite the opposite happens. And he goes on to say this. He says, those who have wealth or friends or favor are less liable to be oppressed because they have weapons in their hands to defend and even to revenge themselves. But the Lord says, God takes peculiar care of the poor, even though they are commonly despised. And that he takes such care of them that he doesn't allow oppression inflicted on them to go past unpunished. For it is not without good ground that he calls himself the protector and the defender of such persons. Think about that. God says, you know what? I have a particular care about the poor because they're often disregarded. They're often just kind of set aside as unimportant ones. We can forget them because they don't really matter. They're the deplorable ones and they're the, they're the losers of history. And God says, no, 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 no. In my heart, I have a real care for them. That means as a community of the gospel, as a community where true flourishing needs to occur according to divine design, that means we ought to care beyond our immediate confines. Or as uh, Brandy Keller calls it, expanding our we. I think that's how she calls it. Yes, who, who am I when I say we, my family, the people that matter to me? We need to expand that a little bit more. We need to extend the boundaries of our borders to include and to embrace. There's a new program that I heard about from my son at his, at his school called Tearing Down the Wall. It's about this kind of uh, um, you know, independent schools in, in this area and, and Georgia, I think, to, to, uh, to overcome and transcend the barriers that prevent mutual understanding and flourishing and getting excited all about all boats riding, rising together. That takes me to the final answer, the irony of the gospel story. I'll be quick with this. So let's try to bring it home. Think with me about the first century Rome. You're a Roman citizen. Life is going great. There is what they will call Pax Romana, Roman peace. Rome has conquered all the, you know, really extended its boundaries and subjected so many, subjugated so many other, you know, lesser nations and tribes. And Rome is experiencing this unparalleled military success and political stability and economic flourishing. If you're a Roman citizen, when you look at the God of Israel or Israelites, you don't think much. You don't. 
When you, if you had a power ranking system of all the gods in the Roman Empire, God of Israel would be at the bottom. Is a captured nation, colonized peoples, why would their God matter? It'll be sort of like equivalent to the Cleveland Browns of the NFL or Baltimore Orioles of the MLB or this year's Golden State Warriors. You get the picture. Now then, why would anyone become a Christian? That is the question that Larry Hurtado, the late New Testament professor at Edinburgh, says, why on earth would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? You know one thing he says? Hurtado says what was really shocking to many Roman citizens was the extreme generosity and empathy and the compassion that many Christians extended, especially to those even outside of their immediate ethnic and national and religious confines. The demonstration of this irony of the gospel the God who was almighty and all merciful, who became poor for our sakes. The, the God who was so powerful yet became weak as an infant and had to be nurtured. And his death came through the death of public execution. There is the irony of the gospel to me. Can anyone really understand what the psalm is saying who had endured no end of ridicule and no end of contempt? Yes, there is someone who can say that I did among the gods. That is Jesus. Jesus among the gods can say honestly, I embrace it for you, I lived it among you, I am living with you, and in that embrace of the fallen lot of humanity, God has redeemed us. God has redeemed us and recalibrated our sense of well-being, our sense of what it means to really flourish. In the same way that fourth century Christian, North African Christian Augustine of Hippo said, the problem with humanity, the problem of the human fall was one word, pride. Human pride of declaration of independence saying, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, that got us in trouble. So Augustine says in his uh, sermons on John, he says, you know what? Therefore, the, the way back is the opposite of pride. That is humility through the humiliation of God's incarnation. You think it was fun for God to be born in Jesus Christ and born away in a manger? I mean, he was born in a, in a terrible kind of economic settings, national political context. Why would God make that particular choice among a plethora of choices that God could have made? I think, friends, we need to really rethink our own privileges. I don't know about you, but I am a person of privilege, socioeconomic privilege, relational privilege, right? Academic, I mean, whatever. I have lots of privileges, and I seldom count them and as a vehicle of using it responsibly for the flourishing of others around me. And I think this psalm really kind of brings us to that fore. So born in the way that he has and died in the fashion that he did, what is God trying to convey and communicate to us through the irony of the gospel? The irony is exactly this. When you think you're strong, you're not. When you realize that you cannot do it, and only then can we really submit ourselves to the plan of God. I don't know about you, but what COVID-19 has taught me, among others, is that I am not in control. I don't have, I hardly have anything under control. I was driving back from Alabama yesterday, and I was thinking about this. I'm 53, and once I turned 50, things began to change, physically, you know, mentally. And, and I began to think a lot about, what am I doing here? Like, what really matters? What really counts? I realized in many ways, between my early 30s and mid-40s, I was building my own kingdom. I thought I was building the kingdom of God. But in ruthless honesty, I said, you know, maybe I was building my own kingdom. Now, I guess what, what, what seems to me clearer than before is that that doesn't really matter. 
Does it really matter where you work? Does it really matter where you go to college? Does it really matter who you know and who you have dinner with? Then the question becomes, what really matters? The irony of the gospel story is this. The gospel story tells us that Jesus invites us to come and die. Jesus invites us and take up your cross and follow me. Sounds terrible, sounds terrifying. Yet Jesus says, only those who are willing to do it, you'll really find your life. I want to invite me, I want to invite you as we come to the Lord's table, I guess in the different setting now, COVID-19 setting, but really ponder the reality of the body of Christ broken and blood of Jesus shed for us to give us the true path of glory through his humiliation. And in our imitation of Christ, may the Spirit really bring us closer to God and in doing so, give us that new identity telling us who we are. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you're ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we think about what it means to know you and be known by you, these are some amazing things that really befuddle our minds sometimes. Why would this creator of all things seen and unseen, billions of galaxies and ever-expanding universe, whatever it is, God, you care to love us and covenant with us you tell us in this sacrament of the Lord's Supper that you are ours and thus we are yours. So we thank you for that wonderful privilege. As we partake of it now, may we do so with deep joy and deep desire. Thank you for calling us unto yourself once again. In your name we pray. Amen.